weeks or so, we have been trying to look at some very fundamental, basic Bible doctrines, um, kind of keep us organized through that. I've been uh, using a song as kind of our roadmap. That's uh, because he lives. And so the first line of that is God sent his son. And so we spent about four sermons just looking at God, the God of the Bible. What does he reveal about himself, his his wonderful and unique attributes, his character, his goodness and his wrath against sin. And we took a week and tried to give an overview of the whole Bible in one sermon. It was a little rushed. And then we spent the last three weeks looking at creation and the fall in the garden and the subsequent fallout that's affected every single human and our what we refer to as the total depravity of man or the complete corruption of man. And it's really been looking at the why because God sent His Son. Well, why? Because of the corruption, because of the fall, because of sin. And so this morning, what Lord willing we'll be looking at is... Uh, Two expressions or titles that we find throughout the Gospels, one being the Son of God and the other being the Son of Man. Okay. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, we see this is a psalm pointing to the Christ, the Messiah. The Lord speaking, he says, yet... Will I declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So, the Lord said unto me. Well, the me there, that's the Christ, the Messiah. That's Jesus saying, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, or bore thee. So this is one of the first glimpses we have into the concept of, of the Son of God. Um, it'd show up again in Proverbs 30 and verse 4. It says, Who hath descended into the heaven? Who hath ascended, gone up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. And then later, the only other place that I could find where the actual expression, the Son of God, appears is actually in the book of Daniel. And this is in, you know, children, you all know this story. Three young men lived very long ago. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? These were um, men who had been taken as young boys captive to Babylon. They had been promoted to be uh, political leaders. Um, and when Nebuchadnezzar gave the order that y'all need to bow down to this idol or we'll kill you, they said, no. They said, our Lord is able to deliver us. They didn't say, he's going to deliver us. They said, he's able. And they're thrown into the fire. And as Nebuchadnezzar is looking in the fire, this is Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Um, as they're in the fire, I remember this fire is so hot that the guys who chunked them in died. 
Never get too close to a bonfire. It just kind of feels like it's singeing your face. Okay. This was so hot, you're trying to chunk some more wood on the fire. In this case, it was men, and you died. Okay. Hot blaze. And Nebuchadnezzar looked, and he said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I've read some commentaries that say this. What he's speaking there is in Chaldee. Um, it's not Hebrew, and so you could also literally translate that as like a son of the gods. So whether this is a direct reference to um, Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, I don't know. Later, Nebuchadnezzar um, would describe it as being an angel. Down in 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And then he gave a decree that no one would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because no other god could deliver after this sort. But either way, you've got this concept of a son of God. Okay? So we'll go forward to the New Testament. And we're going to see, starting at, let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 1. And in verse 26, this is when the angel Gabriel is going to visit Mary. Mary's engaged to Joseph. They're not married yet. Um, She is a virgin. Her cousin uh, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And the sixth month, that's referring to, the angel of Gabriel... The angel Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came into her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation or greeting this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua is a compound word. It's an abbreviation of Jehovah and saves. It literally means God saves. That's his name. Okay. So the angel tells him that's what you'll call him. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom of his kingdom there shall be. No end. Son of the highest, given the throne of David with an everlasting kingdom. Mary is obviously a little confused. Says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
Son of God. Now, the second person in the Trinity, the Word, is God. You see that in John. We won't flip there. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay. When the Word came to earth to be born of a virgin, when he was called the Son of God. Okay. You know, in Mark, that's actually how he would start his gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. So I want to look at quite a few spots in the gospels where Jesus is going to be declared to be the Son of God. And the significance of this is, is, is fairly obvious that he is different from every other man. He is God. He is divine. And so that when we're talking about the Son of God, we are talking about something that is unique. And we're, we're really pointing about His divine nature. Okay, Son of God. So the first one, um, I guess if you're thinking of it chronologically, would be John the Baptist. You know, after the angels declared that He's going to be called the Son of God, John the Baptist, when he uh, before he baptized Jesus, he had been given a prophecy from the Lord that said when uh, the Holy Spirit comes and descends on one, um, that's the one. That's the Christ. And so we're going to see that in John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bare record, he gave witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, that will be God, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, he saw that it did happen. When he was baptized, the Holy Ghost came down in the form of a dove and rested upon Jesus. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Okay? So John the Baptist, bear record that he was the Son of God. Next up would be uh, Nathaniel. Uh, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, same chapter, now verse 45, and says, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying, We found the Christ. And Nathaniel's a little skeptical. He says, Is there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel, wondering how he knew him, said, you know, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered said, before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. So what did Jesus demonstrate to him? And he had supernatural knowledge. Knowledge that no man could, could, ha could have of, of an occurrence that no one would have could have given, couldn't have given him that recon in advance. He knew where he was sitting before Philip. And that was enough for Nathaniel to acknowledge him as being the Son of God and the King of Israel. And Jesus says, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. After he was baptized, he would be uh, led away into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Go back to Luke chapter 4. Do you know what the devil would ask him, tempting him? He'd say this expression on two of the three times. Luke 4, uh, 
in verse 3. Let me just start in verse 1. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, where John had just baptized him, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, afterwards he hungered. So the devil wasn't actively tempting him during the forty days. He was fasting, had nothing to eat or drink for forty days, and then the devil came when he's physically at his weakest. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Jesus answered, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He tempted him again. Then we go down to the, the third one. He'd ask him again. And when he, he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, brought him up to the top of the tall building, he said, If thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus answered and said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So, in two of these temptations, He is challenging Jesus to prove it. We'll see later that the children of the devil... The religious leaders who rejected Jesus will use the same tactic. Prove it. If thou be the Christ, the Son of God, come down from the cross. Right? So the devil is, is challenging it. Jesus doesn't give in to have to prove himself. And he rebuts him with the word. Kids, there's a good lesson in that. You're going to have folks throughout your life who are going to challenge you to prove it. Often, they're just appealing to your pride. If you know something to be true, you don't have to prove it to them. You can see, keep yourself out of a lot of trouble. You can remember that. Now, Satan's underlings, the devils, they could see and recognize, and they would plainly declare it. Luke 4 and 41, the devils came out of many crying and saying, Thou art Christ. Christ means the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, suffering them not to speak, for they knew, for they knew that he was the Christ. So they recognized it. He told them to keep their peace. Same thing would happen with the wild Gadarean who was possessed with legion. Legion being the whole multitude of demons. This is Luke 8 and 28. When, they, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment thee not. Okay. John the Baptist recognized it. Nathaniel was able to believe and recognize. The devil tried very hard to tempt him with that reality, to challenge it. The underlings of the devil would plainly declare it, that we silenced them. And then later, Jesus himself would affirmatively reveal himself to individuals that he was the Son of God. If you go to John chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind. And his disciples, when they first saw him, were having a conversation about, you know, who, who sinned that he was born blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? And Jesus said, it was neither, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. So he healed him, 
and then uh, the religious leaders were very upset, um, and they wanted to rebuke him. And uh, I mean, this is this is something that's unique, because there have been people who had been healed of blindness before this, but this is one who has been born blind. And in verse 32, it says, "Since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind." And this is the blind man, or now seeing man, defending himself to the scribes. He says, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said unto him, Thou wast also together born in his sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. And so the religious leaders didn't like being having the truth told to them. And so they cast him out. And when Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the, the temple, he went and found him. And he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And the blind man said, formerly blind, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? He hadn't seen Jesus before, right? When he healed him, he was still blind. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. He's acknowledging he is the Son of God. Go again to John chapter 11. after demonstrating a miracle that no one had ever seen in the history of the world, he's about to demonstrate another miracle um, of similar magnitude. This is John chapter 11. This involves his buddy Lazarus, who was sick. And they sent word unto him while he was still alive, saying, Come on, we need help. Lord, behold, whom he who thou lovest is sick. This the message his sister sent. And Jesus heard that. He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And so he deliberately waited until Lazarus was dead for several days, three days, so that when he came to the tomb, their response was, Lord, by now he stinks. And that's when he chose to raise him from the dead, to demonstrate a miracle. This is not, you're still on the table, your heart just stopped, let's get the paddles kind of dead. Um, this is not even the, the resurrection that was at the uh, funeral in Nain where they're carrying the, the, the body out to be buried. You know, that's a relatively fresh dead. Um, and you know, the poor widow there who had no other son, she was going to be destitute, and he had pity on her and raised the son for her benefit. But this is one who's been dead a while. By now his body has started to decompose. And he, he demonstrates this miracle that the Son of God might be glorified. And he was. So he's demonstrating his divine power. Right? Later uh, in Matthew chapter 14, uh, all the apostles would acknowledge it when you have Jesus walking on the water. Um, that was Matthew 14. I say later. It's probably earlier in time chronologically. Um, but he had sent them out across the sea. He stayed behind. And it's not until the fourth watch that he comes walking across the sea to catch up with them. He's going to pass on by, but they cried out, thinking it was a spirit. Um, and, you know, Peter pops off and says, If it be thou, bid me come out on the water with me. He says, Come, and he does, and it's going okay until Peter takes his eyes off the Lord and he starts to sink. And uh, Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him. This is uh, Matthew 14 and 31. It says, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, so... Jesus and Peter now enter back into the ship. The wind ceased. 
It had been boisterous. It had been preventing them from making it all the way across. It shouldn't have taken them that long. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Okay? He demonstrated his divine ability over all creation that what should sink didn't. And he had control over the winds and the waves. And the apostles acknowledged that he was the Son of God. Now, the religious leaders did not like anything that he said that uh, made it seem like he was the Son of God. They really were upset by that. Go to John chapter uh, 5. Because this is not just some honorary title. This is not a figure of speech. So Jesus has just healed a man. This is John chapter 5. Um, but it was the Sabbath day, and so they were upset by that. Uh, the man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So they're upset. Here's his response. Jesus answered unto them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but, also, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood the significance. This is not a light thing. They really didn't like it, but that's what it meant. He's making himself equal with God, and he had the right to. John chapter 10 and 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now he's done multitude of miracles at this point. He's demonstrated over and over when John the Baptist was, you know, wondering, you know, are you the one we look for? You know, he gave his disciples the answers of, look at all the things I've just done. The blind are healed, the lame are walking, and the poor are having the gospel preached unto them. They've seen all those things too, but they don't believe. And Jesus answered, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He said, all the works, they speak for themselves, but you believe not. Ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What was the Jews' reaction? They took up stones. They're ready to kill him right there. Jesus answered, For many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you show, stone me? I've done many miracles. Which one are you going to, just so we're clear, which one are you about to hurl rocks at me for? And these are not little pebbles. I mean, just imagine a honking rock that will kill you. The Jews answered, For a good work we stone thee not. He said, Well, don't get us wrong. We're not killing you for miracles. But for blasphemy, because thou being a man makest Thyself, God. Revealest thyself, God. It's probably more accurate. 
later the religious leaders would get uh, very upset while they're um, having their little mock trial. Let's see, in Luke 22, 67, in their council and they're asking, Luke 22, 67 says, Art thou the Christ? Tell us! And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man, talk about that later, sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, they start clamoring their questions, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. Now if you look in the account over in Mark 14 and 62, their question is, thou, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So he acknowledged it to them. They didn't like it. And in fact, they would continue to mock him, as we mentioned earlier, Matthew uh, 27, when he's hanging on the cross, that would be the charge that they threw back at him. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Y'all, we'd be in really bad shape if Jesus had chosen to reveal right then, to prove a point, that he was the, the Son of God by coming down from the cross. But for our sakes and all the sakes of his children, he didn't. He remained. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Don't let anyone deceive you in saying that Jesus didn't declare himself to be the Son of God. There are many false teachers out there who will try to make that case that Jesus was somehow a created being, um, that he is a lesser God, that he is not God himself. Or it's even more crazy that he was a good man and he never claimed to be God. No. Apostle Paul would write in the Roman letter that he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. It's the intro to the letter. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. He had promised before the gospel. That gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. He said all that was written before he promised it concerning what? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, Messiah, our Lord, our master, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by how? How was he declared? By the resurrection from the dead. Okay? 
Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God. He was divine. He is God. Okay? If you look over in 1 John, uh, Apostle John would summarize the purpose of the Son of God coming into the world. 1 John 3, 7 and 8 says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, revealed, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What was one of the purposes that he was revealed? To destroy the works of the devil. Okay? You say, well, you know, Brother John, this is kind of obvious, right? It's kind of a given. We're teaching Bible basics, so yeah. But this is also really, really, really important. This is foundational. You know, when you uh, look back in the Acts, when uh, Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's talking. He'd been reading in Isaiah. Calls him up into the chariot. Says, "Tell me what's going on here." And Philip began to open his mouth. This is uh, Acts 8:35. He opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, whatever one he was looking at right then. He started at that one and began to preach unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, "See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized?" And Philip said, "If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest." Okay. And listen how he answered. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not was, not could be. Thou believest with all thy heart. What does he believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Sometimes when preachers are doing the invitation to open in the church and asking if anyone wants to make a, you know, Confession before the church. That's one of the things that you're to confess when you join the church, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because if you don't believe that, you don't need to be joining the church yet. Either you don't understand or you haven't been given the eyes to see that yet. But that's foundational. Um, go back to First John. Because you cannot honestly say that without God already dwelling within you. First John 4.15 says, Whoever, who, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. You've already got the indwelling Holy Spirit. You've already been born again. You cannot confess that unless God's already there. Okay? Go down to chapter 5. Let's just start in verse 4. It says, For whatsoever is born of the world overcometh... Excuse me. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Foundational. This is he that came by water and blood, 
even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is true. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Three different occasions. There was a voice that came from heaven and testified that said, This is my Son. Hear him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I'll be at his baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, and at his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in the final week. Okay? So God himself has testified it. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. What's that mean? That goes back to John 14, 15. That God's dwelling in you. God himself is testifying that this is my Son. That's how you can believe. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. That he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. There's no other way. Jesus Christ is the only way. These things I write unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. It's written to believers. That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Okay? This is important. Let me say, this is, this is, this is too easy. This is too foundational. I can't stress enough that this needs to be understood. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God. He is the God-man. Both the Son of God and He's also be described as the Son of Man. Okay? Now, I did a word search for that expression in the Old Testament and only came up with it once. It was also in the book of Daniel, interestingly. And it was in the form of a prophecy, which are always fun. This one's pretty straightforward, though. This is Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days is another name used in the Old Testament to describe the Father. Came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Son of man, he's going to be given a kingdom and it's an everlasting kingdom. Go back to the New Testament and we'll see Jesus would often use this expression, Son of Man, to refer to himself. 
Matthew chapter 8 and in verse 20, uh, a scribe has come up to him and said, you know, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And his response to him is that the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And so as the Son of God, that title and expression and um, mantle points to the divinity and the power, all knowledge, command to all his creation, the Son of Man often points to the limitations of the human. So in one sense, God owns it all. Right? He's the creator. He created it all. And yet here, as the Son of Man, He didn't have a house. He didn't have a bed. He had a closer grasp of true poverty than anybody in this room can really understand. You know, he's the great high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmity, which means he knows what you're going through, even down to poverty. He knows. Later in chapter uh, 9, he would use the expression again, uh, Matthew 9, and in verse 5, revealing that the Son of Man had power on earth to forgive sins. Um, this is the, the story of the, the guy who was sick with palsy and his friends came and they lifted up the roof to try and lower him down because they couldn't get in. The, the place was so packed they couldn't get this uh, bed into the door. And so they came on the roof and busted it up and lowered him down. And he says to him, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The people there were very upset by that. Um, who can forgive sins except for God? And he said, you know, which is easier, to say, thy sin, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, or rise up and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man have power to forgive sins, he turns to the guy, rise up, carry your bed, and walk. And that's what he did. He demonstrated that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Now sometimes, I'll say for a long time, I'll sit here and read that and say, how can he do that? How can he just say, your sins be forgiven? The same way that your sin that you haven't even committed yet is already forgiven. He's not taking it away there. He's telling him that it's already forgiven. Because the work that Jesus would do on the cross was so absolutely going to occur in the eyes of God. It already had. It was a given. It was guaranteed. Your sins are forgiven. You are my child. That's what he's saying. You're my child. Your sins are forgiven. And so, well, yes, you and I are admonished to go to the Lord every time that we fall short. Somehow that expression is easier than saying, Lord, I sinned. Lord, I breached your commands and your law. Lord, I let you down. Lord, I made, I brought shame to your name. I go and confess that to him. Is just and righteous to forgive us and clear our conscience so we can continue on in serving Him because that sin too has already been paid for and already forgiven. Now, His ability to announce that comes with God's authority that He put on the Son of Man to be the judge of the world. Go to John chapter 5. 
and 27. John 5, 25 through 27. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. The Son of God and His divinity will hear the voice. They're dead, but they'll hear. They'll hear it and shall live. For as the Father hath life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in His self, and hath given Him authority to execute judgment. Also, because he is the Son of Man. He is uniquely qualified to be the judge of all mankind because he came and took on flesh, was tempted with everything that you and I were tempted with, and yet he did it without sin. Judgment was given to the Son. Okay. Back in Matthew 12, we see that the Son of Man was Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12. Verse 8. His disciples have been hungry. They've been walking through a field. They've had some grain there. And they're rubbing it together to get them something to eat. And the people are upset. And his response to them is, If you'd known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath day. Sabbath was created for man, not, not man for the Sabbath. And here he is as the son of man. And all things are going to be put under his feet. Remember his kingdom, right, And Daniel? He's going to be given an everlasting kingdom. All things will be put under his feet, even the Sabbath. He is the Lord of all. Okay, go down to verse 40, that same chapter. For as Jonas was three days, now they're asking for a sign. Lord, show us a sign. And they want to see a sign from heaven, something, and then we'll believe. Because all these other miracles, they aren't really good enough. Show us a real sign. You know, something cool, like, you know, fire coming down, like Isaiah. That'd be, that'd be pretty awesome, right? No. He said, and even an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet of Jonas, Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the... Son of man. Be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. His divinity, Son of God, the humanity, he's able to die. He was able to be three days and three three nights in the grave. Fully God. Fully man. Now, if that's hard to wrap your head around, it's hard for them back there to wrap their head around too. Uh, John 12 and 34, as Jesus had just revealed you know, that he was going to be lifted up, signifying what manner that he should die, the people answered and said, we've heard out of the law that the Christ abideth forever. Our understanding of this Messiah, he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. And how thou sayest the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Like We don't know what you're talking about. It doesn't fit into our preconceived notions about how this is all supposed to go. It was a little confusing. Yeah. Is it wonderful? Is it true? Yeah. It is. 
go back to Matthew, when, when Jesus would ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? He would just address himself that way. Of whom do men say that I am? Who say that the Son of Man? This is Matthew 16, 13. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Expression. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's pretty clear who the Son of Man is. Yeah, it is. Now, if you go read, read Ezekiel, the expression Son of Man is going to appear like a hundred times. That's like it's actually directed to Ezekiel. I'm not looking at that. That's you were born a man, but this one, the God Man, both God and man. Who do men say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elias. Some say Jeremiah. He says, but who say ye? Jesus. And Simon Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son. Of the living God, Son of Man, Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Can you believe that Jesus is the God-Man today? If you can, that's a miracle. And it comes from God. Later in uh, that same chapter down in 24, after rebuking Peter, um, he would say unto his disciples... Uh, it's Matthew 16, verse 24. It says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his Christ, cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come. In the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Personally, I think Jesus there is talking about John, uh, the Apostle John. Because in the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's going to see a glimpse of that day when it's coming. But he's coming. So it's pointing here at the Son of Man. He's coming, and He's coming in power and glory. You'll be able to see the glory that was veiled in all its wonder. Matthew and Matthew 18.10 would give a little summary for why the Son of Man came. Matthew 18.10 and 11 says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven there are angels who always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 11, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of Man has come to save the lost. where we were. We were lost without hope. But the Lord sent the greatest treasure and now you have a glorious hope. Hope without end. And he accomplished what he set out to do. 
came to save that which is lost and He's hanging on the cross and He declares, it's finished. He did it. Now the manner that He came, He didn't come as the, the triumphant king on the white horse, right? Folks talk a lot about that in comparing to the donkey, right? But He came in the form of a servant. The humility of His service. Matthew 20 and verse 28. And this is as the disciples are yet again arguing about who's going to be greatest among them. And two of them have kind of asked for a preferential seating in heaven. And He abraded them. It says, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, that they have great exercise, and that they that are great exercise authority. It says, You know, in the outside world, those that have the most power and influence, they... They've got the prestige. They've got the, the power, right? Authority. But it shall not be so among you. I already burst your bubble about who's going to be greatest. Whosoever that will be great among you, let him be your minister. Means a servant. That's right. Servant. And whosoever will be chief, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The humility that he took on as the Son of Man and in the role that he had. That's our model. Later in Matthew 24, you'd see another uh, description of his glorious return. Matthew 24. 23, it says, If any man shall say unto you, Lo, here's Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, if so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive even the elect, very elect. But I have told you before, wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. So these are people who are saying, Christ has returned. He's just out in the desert. Come on, let's go find him. I said, No. He's over here in secret. Come on. No. So you can ignore that. It says, for wheresoever, no, so for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth all the way to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be public. There's not a hiding of it. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after, now that scene to me is, you know, I've ever seen buzzards over something big. You can get a whole tower of them. Right? You can see it from miles and miles and miles away. It's public. Right? Immediately after the tribulations of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from the heaven and the powers of the earth of the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. What that sign is, I don't know. And shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The Son of Man is coming back with great glory. That's the day that we're looking forward to. A couple more references, and we don't even have to turn there, but 
This is the title that Stephen would say as he's about to be stoned. Or he's one of, one of the first deacons. He's a speaking deacon. It's allowed. Um, and he's given his testimony, and they're very upset about it, and so they're going to stone him. And he would look up, this is Acts 7 and 55, and he would say that he saw the Son of Man standing on the right hand of the Lord. And then later in Revelation, uh, as you see, um, one walking among the candlesticks. There again in Revelation 1 and 13, that would be the Son of Man walking among the candlesticks. We'll just read that one. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with the paps of a golden girdle. His hair, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as the flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass as they burned in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth but a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was was as the sun shineth in his strength. His face was so bright, it was like looking into the full strength of the sun. That's a glimpse at the glorified Son of Man. Son of Man, Son of God. That's our Savior. I hope this is a blessing. Thank you all. Time and attention. Glad you're willing to share them and express them in such a way. And um, the Lord's already fed me this morning, so I appreciate appreciate Him doing that. As y'all know, we've been trying to look at some foundational biblical truths. Um, nine or ten weeks or so. Last week we talked about. Jesus being both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Brother Jerry, can you hear me? Or do I need to speak louder? All right. Your hearing aids still sent off? Got one? Okay, good deal. He came up to me last week and said, I enjoyed being here, but I didn't hear a word you said. <laughs> I'll try and be louder. So this morning, I want to uh, give attendance to reading. Remember Paul gave that exhortation to Timothy to give attendance to, to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. So we've spent some time in doctrine. I've got some good exhortation this morning, and so I want to give some attendance to reading. Um, it can be hard to sit in the pew and have the preacher read a whole lot. I'm going to ask that y'all work with me to stay alert and to try to visualize what we are going to be reading about, and this is going to be reading about the Word coming into the world, the Word being made flesh, the birth of Jesus. You can hear all sorts of snippets and summaries, but I don't think there's anything better than reading it to get the full account. Um, you'll find it's very different than what the world, you know, in the next month or so will kind of be talking about. Um, and I don't have any problem with folks celebrating Christmas. It's a good time. To remember the birth of the Lord? Was he born on December 25th? No, probably not. Um, but is it a good time to remember him? Sure. One time in our society when you can freely talk about Jesus, nobody's going to look at you weird. Take advantage. Tell them the truth. So, I'm going to start in John chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses and then we'll go to Luke. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. 
This beginning goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some translations will try and add in a little single letter to change the meaning there and say it was a God. The Word wasn't a God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we're talking about the second person in the Trinity, the Word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Couldn't understand it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, referring to John, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Referring to being born into the uh, nation of Israel, Jewish, um, and they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Those that believe were born again, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again of God. Verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's going to be our focus this morning, is the Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. So if you turn with me, we're going to look at Luke. Luke chapter 1. The first four verses of this letter, um, Luke is a traveling buddy of Apostle Paul, also referred as the beloved physician. He's going to give his little intro about who he's writing um, this gospel too, it's a man named Theophilus. It says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, so others have, have written before, even as they delivered them unto us, which were from which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the apostles. They? Even if the apostles delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having perfect or complete understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theopolis, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. 
So Theophilus had been taught about Jesus, and now uh, Luke is writing here so he can have further confirmation of exactly the play-by-play of what, what he's been taught. So he can have no certainty. So our narration picks up in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both were both both were now well stricken in years. Alright, so we've got a lot of information that's given us here to, to set the scene. Alright? And this is going to be you know, at least a year before Jesus is born. Um, just kind of wrap your head around where we're starting the timeline. A priest named Zacharias. The name Zacharias, Hebrew word is Zachariah. It's the Greek form. It means God has remembered. Okay? God has remembered. His wife's name's Elizabeth. In Hebrew, it's uh, Elishaba. It means God of the oath. God has remembered. God of the oath. God's remembered his oath, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with David. All the things that he's going to fulfill, he's remembered. This is a free nugget for you. Elisha, but the only time that that Hebrew name appears in the Old Testament, that's Aaron's wife's name. The only time it appears. You've got Zacharias and Elizabeth. So in your mind's eye, you're imagining an older couple, right? They're both so old. But they're not, they're not having children anymore, all right? And they were righteous. He's a priest. She's a daughter of Aaron. They're trying to serve the Lord, both righteous before, the God, before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, all right? So they're trying to serve the Lord. They have not been blessed with children, all right? He's of the course of Abiah. Remember, David would divide all the priests into a series of courses. They for groups. There'd be 24 of them. And the Jewish calendar um, was governed by the moon. So you've got 12 um, months, and each of the months you divide it into the four weeks. And so you would have these 24 courses serving over the course of the year. Each course would serve about two weeks. All right? So... When exactly the course of Abiah served? I don't know. It was eighth in line. I Googled it and they said sometime around June, May, June. Take that with a grain of salt. Um, well, it's his turn to serve. All right? He's a priest. It's his turn to serve. And uh, his job is to burn incense. So it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went in into the temple of the Lord. Just a brief refresher. We won't spend a whole lot of time in the temple, but this is a temple that's been rebuilt, known as Herod's Temple. Outside, you had the big altar for burning the sacrifices. Right? Inside, you had the, the holy area, which you had the showbread, you had the candlestick, table with the candlestick, and then you had a little altar where you burned incense. And then you had the veil, and then inside was the most holy place where you had uh, the ark, um, or where the ark would have been if it hadn't been lost. Um, and that's where the priest would go once a year to offer blood of atonement. All right? 
So in your mind's eye, you've got this pre-Zacharias who's going to be going into this room. It's probably dark. Only one one candle in there, right? Like the menorah, different number, but just for your visual. And he's going in by himself. This is not you know, something that requires a lot of people lifting the tote and heavy animals. He's just burning some incense. Right? And while he's in there, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense. So a certain time of the day, he's going in there to burn incense. There are people who are outside praying. Whole multitude. So you can visualize him in there. He's putting his incense on the table. And then suddenly, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I suspect that'd be mighty startling. Right? This is not some heathen dude. This is a priest who he and his wife have been trying to serve the Lord all their life. Right? And suddenly an angel appears unto him. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. Alright? And the angel's going to speak to him. He says, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. What have they been praying for? Most likely that the Lord would give them children. So he's telling them, Your wife shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Alright? Um, the Hebrew word for John is Jeconiah. It means God favored. Favored of God. Okay? And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay. So he's given John, given him the instructions about what John is going to do and how he's going to be the precursor, the, the one to come before the light and witness and to prepare the people. All right, and how does Zechariah respond? Zechariah, this righteous man, right? he said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Whereby shall I know this? He's asking for a sign. And, Lord, I need you to do something to me so I can believe you. Y'all ever test the Lord like that? He's told him what's going to happen. You want a sign? You have a kid. That's been the sign. This, you know, often the Lord would give an immediate sign in the Old Testament when it was something that was going to be fulfilled way down beyond often your life or hundred years in the future. That, so you'll know that that's going to happen. I'll do something right now. But here, having a kid, that's, that's not too far in the distance. right? Where shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. So he's asking for something. He's asking for a sign. The Lord's going to grant his wish, and it's not going to be the way that he'd prefer. 
And the angel answered and said unto him, I am Gabriel. And that literally means a valiant warrior of God. Okay? That stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show you these glad tidings. He's a sign in and of himself. This is not a word that's come from just a human prophet, but an angel sent from God has come into the place where no one but priests, no human priest had the right to go. No one human but a priest had the right to go. And here he has appeared unto you out of nowhere, and you're asking for another sign. So I come from the presence of God, and I'm sent to speak unto thee and show you these glad tidings. This is good news. Bubba? <laughs> So he's going to give him a sign. He says, And behold, thou shalt be dumb. Not unintelligent, but unable to speak. Imagine that. Suddenly you've lost the ability. You're an old man. You know how to talk. But the Lord can take it away. You'll be dumb. And not able to speak. Until the day that these things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. The Lord's words are going to be fulfilled in his time. You can believe them. Okay? So imagine he's in there. He's having this conversation. Obviously, it doesn't take too long to burn incense because the people are starting to be like, all right, where is he at? And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. All right, so it's taking a little while. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them. He made some kinds of signs and gestures, because he can't talk and remain speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration was accomplished, he departed to his own house. Now notice he didn't ask for a doctor's note to be excused from the rest of his service. <laughs> I can't speak anymore. Can I go home early? He continued the rest of his service, and then he went home. All right? And after those days, so sometime after that, people get caught up. Well, the course of by has to be right here. Well, then he has to conceive. It just says after those days, in their due season. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Meg and I were talking the other day about you know, doctors today, they keep lowering the age for women of what's deemed high risk. Was it now 35? 35? Used to be 40? Imagine this woman. <laughs> I don't know how old she was. I know that she was old enough to where she could no longer have kids naturally. This is a miracle. And she's hit herself for five months because maybe she just didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm ready to explain it. But she is conceived with her mute husband, by the way. He still can't talk. He's conceived and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among men. There was a, there was a, a, a scorn, a stigma associated with not being able to bear children. It was a reproach. And so the Lord has taken away at a day that it wasn't looked for, though they'd been praying for it. Didn't even, you know, husband didn't believe it when word came. Now the angel came to the husband directly. No one came to Elizabeth. As far as she knows, it's only what he's been able to communicate to her. It's been writing her out or signs. All right? 
So fast forward another month. So we've gone from the temple, you know, sometime, period of time, she conceives. Fast forward five months. Now we're in one more month forward, the sixth month of Elizabeth's birth, uh, conception, sent the conception. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God under the city of Galilee, named Nazareth. All right? Nazareth is north of Jerusalem. The region up there is called Galilee. Southern region is Judea. All right? He was sent from God unto a city of Galilee, the region named Nazareth. He was sent to a virgin, espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her. Right, you've got another direct appearance of an angel coming into her. She's awake. This is not a, a night vision dream. The angel appeared unto her and said, Hail, highly favored, the Lord with thee, blessed thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled. At his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. So her trouble was confused of what he was saying. Why was he calling her highly favored, the Lord with her, blessed among women? Now some people can take what the angel is going to say about Mary and bend it all out of whack and try to make that you're so wonderful, you're so righteous, you're so pure. And some of you get into this we're praying to her and with her and all that other foolishness. This is the angel saying, the Lord has blessed you by choosing you. You are favored by being chosen to be his vessel. Okay? So she was troubled, and the angel said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast found favor with God. Let's tell what's going to happen. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall shalt call his name Jesus. Hebrew word for that is Joshua. It means God saves. Right. He shall be great. I love all the shalls and shouts in this. You shall conceive, shall bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus, shall be great. He shall be called the son of of the highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It's a pretty wonderful announcement. These are glad tidings. All right. And Mary responds, how shall this be? seeing I know not a man. Meg and I were talking about this and looking at the difference between her response and Zacharias' response. Zacharias' response was, how will I know this? Show me a sign. Whereas it seems like Mary's concerned about the logistics. <laughs> how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She's never been with a man and so as a virgin. How would she conceive? But she's not testing him or asking for proof. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. 
You know, when the apostles are on the Mount of Transfiguration and the cloud came upon them, and they heard the voice of the Lord that third, uh, second time, that cloud overshadowed them. It's the same word. Overshadowed thee. The power of the highest, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Got the Son of the highest, the throne given to him of David. The power of the highest will overshadow thee, and he'll be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. That's the answer to her question. How shall this be? For with God nothing shall be impossible. Remember that when you start to pray. He's got sufficient power. Sometimes we limit ourselves to small prayers. Lord, heal us from this. Lord, help us from that. It's okay to pray big. He may not choose to answer it. That's his discretion. But he has the power. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Now listen to Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. He says, Look, I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to thy word. That is humble submission. I'm the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Do we, can we, do we, have we said that to the Lord in our life? Or have we continued to act like the Lord's our servant? Very humble response. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went in the hill country with haste into a city of, Judea, of Judah. All right, so she traveled south down to Judah to go visit her cousin a much older cousin, and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. She said something to say hello. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. That babe is John the Baptist. He leaped in her womb because he'd been filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice. All right, so here she's being used as a prophetess. Blessed thou among women, blessed, and blessed the fruit of thy womb. And whence this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed. For there shall be a performance of those things which shall be told her from the Lord. Zacharias didn't believe. The things were still going to be performed, but he had to be silent for some period of months. It was more than nine. Right? But she believed. There shall be a performance of those things which are told her from the Lord. 
And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My soul exalts the Lord, or lifts up the Lord, or makes Him large in my own eyes. Magnify the Lord. Praising Him. Another way to describe it. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For He hath regarded the low estate of His handmaiden. In their humility, recognizing that she's of low estate, not of high consequence. For behold, and from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Who is the focus on all this? It's on God. She's recognizing that she's lowly, he's great. He's done great things. Holy is his name. His mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Okay. Now on one hand, she's recounting all the times in the Old Testament where he's done all those things. And on the other hand, these are all the things that he's about to do in perfection, in Christ, in her son. Whether she fully understood that or not, I don't know. But you can see the mirror about how he had shown mercy and had shown his strength and had brought the mighty humble and raised the lowly. Yeah, he'd done that. But he's about to do that perfectly. Okay. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. And so Mary's there in the hill country of Judea with her pious cousin and husband from the from the time when the Lord uh, sent the angel to tell her she was going to have the child. Um, and so she's there for three months. And then she went home. And it was time for Elizabeth to have the child. Elizabeth full-time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day, which was the under the law, they had to wait till the eighth day to circumcise the child. They came to circumcise the child, and they called his name Zacharias, after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John, which is what the angel had directed her husband to name him. And they said unto her, There's none of thy kindred that's called by this name. So they're very similar to my family. We pick all the family names and just plug it in, plug it in. We got one already then. You just had a number. There's none of thy kindred called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he should have him called. Zacharias, you know, let us know. And he asked her writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And so that was the last thing that the angel had told him was going to happen, is that have the son and you'll name him John. Well, when he did that, the name was John, and the things were fulfilled, and he was able to speak again. And they marveled, and his mouth was opened immediately, his tongue was loosed, and he spake. And the first thing he did was praise God. He praised God. And fear came on all that round 
that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So this has been a very strange birth of John the Baptist, right? His mother's very old. His father had been mute for nearly a year. And then as soon as he's named, he's able to speak. This is odd. Right? So they didn't know exactly what's going to happen. They said, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zacharias, now his mother had been filled with the Holy Ghost when Mary came to visit. Now he's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. He's going to prophesy. He's filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Right? Now, uh, in the Old Testament, horns are often used to uh, symbolize power and authority of a king or a reign or a kingdom. So he's saying up, he's, reigned, he's raised up a new power, a new king. Right? And that, the horn of salvation, the deliverer, for us of the house of his servant David. Right? And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, this is God, which, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This is what's been told us, that we will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his covenant. God has remembered, God of an oath or covenant, name of the two parents. He has remembered his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Now the Jews would say at this point, our enemies, our greatest enemy is the Roman Empire, under military occupation. But you and I both know our greatest enemy is sin, Satan, death, the power of darkness. To be delivered out of the power of darkness will be delivered by Jesus Christ, and we were. That we what? That we can just live any old way we want. But that we might serve him without fear. That's not an absence of fear of persecution but fear without the fear of our enemies, without the fear of sin, without the fear of death. You have the privilege to serve the Lord without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, so you imagine him holding little John here, looking at him and says, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Never really understood that sentence. What's the day spring? That's kind of like the dawn, the sunrise. Jesus is the light of the world, right? He has come from heaven. And like a rising sun, he's come now into his world. He's visited us. This is much better than the little sunrise you see out here. This is the light. And that's who John the Baptist is going to be witnessing of, that he is the light. Right? He's come from on high and hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness, of which we all did, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Jesus himself is peace. So that was his prophecy. And the child, John, grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. So we'll leave John aside for a while, growing up over in the deserts all right, until the day when he would come forth and start to preach and teach. All right, go with me to Matthew chapter 1 then. Still with me? Everybody still awake? I will omit the uh, genealogies. Y'all can read those at your pleasure over the course of this week. So we're going to pick up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When Addis' mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Okay? So in our timeline, we're jumping back to Elizabeth has conceived. The angel has, been, has visited Mary and told her that she will conceive. And now we're past that point of where it's now known that she's expecting. She is still not married to Joseph. They have not come together, so they know it's not his child. She's been found with a child of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is obviously distressing to her husband, to her fiancé, future husband. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away privily. I mean, by the public example of under the law, with all the facts that they knew, she would have been counted as an adulteress and would have, could have been stoned to death if he had chose to go that route. But his solution that he was thinking on was to just put her away privately um, and not marry her. But he's been troubled about these things. Obviously, it's distressing. He's been chewing on it. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. Okay? He didn't have the direct visitation that Zacharias and Mary did, but in a dream, an angel came to him. And so some people will say, well, this is just a story Mary concocted to uh, justify herself. Those who don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, well, the Lord sent an angel in a dream to Joseph, too. Right? So he was not just having to rely on Mary's word, but the Lord sent an angel unto Joseph, saying, Joseph... Thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So I didn't know that she is indeed a virgin. She has not uh, been unfaithful to you. You may take her as your wife. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Joshua, God saves. For the reason... He shall save his people from their sins. That verse, you got the whole gospel summed up in one verse. Y'all read verse 21 five or six times over the course of this week, and y'all chew on that. She shall bring forth a son. I really need that before. That, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. God saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. All right? Now, when all this was done, 
that it might be spoken, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, prophet Isaiah. This is quoted in 7.14. We won't turn that down. It says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, God with us. Well, just real briefly, if you go read chapter 7 of Isaiah, what's going on there is King Ahaz is in distress because, you know, remember the nation is split in two. The northern kingdom, Israel, has now teamed up with another country, and they want to whoop up on Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. And so he's distressed by this. Um, they're scared. And so he's talking to the prophet Isaiah, and um, Isaiah basically tells him that, you know, ask the Lord for a sign. And he says, I don't want to tempt the Lord for a sign. And Isaiah responds back with this, that the Lord will give, a, give you a sign himself then. And the sign is, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, God with us. So they had an immediate fear of what they were going on, and he's given a sign for when all fear can go away. When you can serve him without fear. All right? Child shall be born of a virgin. They call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel means God is with us. God has come down into his creation, taken on flesh. Then Joseph, being raised from a dream, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not. So he went through the formal marriage ceremony. They're now husband and wife, but they did not come together as husband and wife. Till after she delivered the child, however long that was after this point. And knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn, and he called his name Jesus. Alright? Let's go back to Luke. Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the words should be taxed. The word tax means to uh, to write, to enroll. So it could have been a census, it could have been a taxing, it could have been a census before you're taxing. But either way, you had to go to your hometown to get put down on the ledger um, to be enrolled. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Remember, David was from Bethlehem, right? Because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. All right, so she's pretty new, near to her due date. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. All right? So sometimes we kind of go quickly over this theme. I want you to slow down. I'm going to slow down, and I want you to think about it. If you're now there with your shepherds, it's dark. Right? There are no artificial lights. If you got a little campfire, you got starlight, maybe the moon, that's it. Right? It's dark, you're out there, you're got your ears kind of perked up so there's no wolves or anything coming to hurt your flock. It's dark. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. 
it's no longer dark. They have never seen an artificial light at night that's so bright to shine around them. This is distressing. The light in and of itself, even if there wasn't an angel attached to it, would be distressing. What is going on? There was an angel that appeared. His bright light shone right about. And they were so afraid. <coughs> marginally distressed. Just a little bit uncomfortable. They're, they're, you know, this panic. Right? So afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Now notice again, this is another direct visitation of an angel. This isn't in a dream. They're awake. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings. I bring you good news. Great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now later, the, Jesus would ask his uh, disciples, who do men say that I am? Right? And they'd go through the list and eventually say, but well, who do you say? He said, the Christ. He said, you're blessed because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But God. So here it is again. First time it's revealed, it's God doing the revealing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And then gives them a sign. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, I used to have the impression that swaddling clothes just you know, meant they were so poor, they just got them wrapped up in rags. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Swaddling just means whatever they're wrapping the kid up in. All right? But... The significant piece of that is not you're just looking for someone wrapped up in swaddling clothes. You're looking for them in an animal crib. You know, that's odd, right? So here's your sign. You go find this child. He'll be laying in an animal feed trough. Okay. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. All right. Y'all got that mental picture yet? You had one angel. Glory so bright. So afraid, and now they're. I don't know if they were all angels, or if there were other heavenly creatures there, but it's a heavenly host. And you should imagine that in your eye. This is how the Lord is, God is announcing that His Son has come into this world and taken on human flesh. And He's announcing it to lowly shepherds. Remember, old. Pharaoh in Egypt, shepherds were despised. They were lower than low. You were to, to tell Pharaoh that you're, you know, herdmen, and they'll put you over somewhere else because you're kind of a social pariah. So what does that point to what role that Jesus would fill? That he was the shepherd, the great shepherd that came to save his people, to go after that which was lost carry them back in his bosom to redeem them and ultimately to lay down his life for them. So it's no surprise that the Lord would reveal to these shepherds first that the great shepherd had appeared. So you now got this heavenly host, the multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward man. I used to kind of be confused about, you know, peace. I mean, there's so much trial and turmoil that comes after this. What does it mean, peace on earth? It's Jesus. He's the peace. 
The peace is now on earth. He's here. He's the one that through His body He will make peace between you and your Lord. A perfect peace. He'll break down that wall of partition between the Jews and the non-Jews and you will have an avenue of perfect peace directly to God the Father into His throne room. There is peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. Alright, so that's kind of a little visual, right? Gone away to them into heaven. And sitting there looking up. You know what it is again? Dark. <laughs> Your night vision shot. And you're just kind of like, okay. The shepherd said to one another, let us now go see unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. The Lord's taking the time to tell us about it. We need to go check it out. Around that country. And so they head to Bethlehem. And they came with haste. This was not a lollygagging affair. This is, well, well, we'll see about it next week. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and they found the babe lying in the manger, the corn crib, the feed. That's where they found him, just like the Lord said it. That was a sign. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. So they started telling folks. So we saw this vision, those angels, and they're telling, glory to God, there's going to be a baby, he's born, and there he was. Right? Folks probably looked at him like they were nuts. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherd. They're kind of astonished. But Mary kept all those things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned. I guess back to the sheep. Check on them. Return. Glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. They had the vision. They went with haste. They saw. And in all that, they're glorifying and praising God. For all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which is it was told. Right? which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So that would be the angel visit that came to Mary. Told him his name will be Jesus. Because by the time the angel visited Joseph in the dream, she had already conceived. But in both cases, the name was told it would be Jesus, and it was. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, now you have to go back and read your Leviticus, if you haven't read that recently, when a woman gave birth to a child, there had a period that she had to separate herself. And if you had a boy, it was, uh, I think, 33 days. If you had a girl, you had to double it. It was like 66 days where you had to stay away. You're kind of in quarantine um, until you were purified. Right? They had the regular purification for every month, but this one was was longer. Right? Days of your purification were accomplished, so hang tight 33 days. And then they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It was under the law that when firstborn of any was was born, you had to uh, take him. He was holy to the Lord. Right? That went all the way back to um, the deliverance out of Egypt. That when he spared all the Hebrew firstborns and he killed all the Egyptian ones, he declared, those are mine. The firstborns are holy and unto the Lord. And so instead of um, taking them, he would exchange them for the Levites. Right? And there was actually more people than there were Levites of the firstborns, and so he had to take some, some uh, collection up in exchange for the overlap. 
But either way, that points to the firstborn being holy, that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of Mary, and so they had to go fulfill that which was under the law, which is to make the sacrifice, right? Which was to offer a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons, all right? And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, a just man. A man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. So the Lord had blessed this man. Um, the Holy Ghost had been put upon him. He's been waiting for, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Lord to answer prayers. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So that was what the Holy Ghost told him. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah, until you see the anointed one of God. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. He didn't just happen chance along the temple. The Spirit led him into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, just to sacrifice the two birds, then took he him up in his arms. Imagine this old man. He's ready to die. He's old. He's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And he's looking at him, and he blessed God. And he's saying, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was able to look on it with his natural eyes and hold this, see the child Jesus. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Right? Jesus was described as the light, the light of all men. He's got this early here before anyone would even conceive about how it will be revealed in Paul's ministry about there being a broader salvation than just natural Israel. But he was going to be a light unto the Gentiles as well. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. The glory of thy people. He's naturally born in the Jewish nation. His people. His own people that would not receive him. They were going to reject him. And Joseph and his mother marveled. Can you imagine them just kind of standing there, jaw dropped. This guy's come and taking your child, and he's like just saying this amazing prophecy about this child. Like, Whoa. And Simeon blessed them. That's interesting. He blessed the parents and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many shall be revealed. And there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. All right, so you got another lady, Anna, who's Again, extremely old. She was married, however old she was, and she lived with him for seven years, and then she's going to, and he died, and then she's a widow for four score and four years. Four score is 80, 84 years. She's old. <laughs> seven years of married life, 84 years of widowhood, and however long old she was when she got married. And what was she doing? She departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. Now, you ever get worried that you just can't be a real service to the Lord? I'm too old to be of service. I'm too young to be of service. I don't have the physical talents or material wealth or whatever it is. Insert all excuses here and flush them. She served the Lord night and day with fasting and prayers. That's not an exclusive thing. 
means it's available to you and me too. Served with fasting and prayers night and day. And she coming in that as in, coming in in that instant. All right, so Simon is blessed Mary. She coming in in that instance gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Two different times the Lord through the Holy Ghost has allowed these people to recognize who they were seeing. And she spoke of him, not just then, but spake of them to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city in Nazareth. All right. We'll wrap up there for today, but in between 38 and 39 is most likely when um, the scene in Matthew chapter 2 will occur when the wise men come for a visit and we have the flight to Egypt. But thank you all for your time and attention. I hope this was edifying to you. Your Bibles will be in Matthew chapter 2. Last week we looked at Jesus' birth and the period in which they named him after the eighth day as the angel instructed. And Jesus, God saves. And they had a period of uh, Mary's separation for purification under the law. And then after that they went up to Jerusalem to offer as was required under the law. This is when we're going to pick up after that point. This is when uh, Jesus is going to have the visitors of the wise men. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? that is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. All right, so a few things to unpack in this. One, we got to deal with the storybook misconception that the magi or wise men showed up on the night that Jesus was born. Uh, also, that they were kings. There's you know, three kings from the Orient, right? All it says is that they were wise men from the east. It doesn't say they were kings. It doesn't say where in the east. Now, if you look on a map from Jerusalem and you go east, you know what you run into a whole lot of? Desert. Pretty much until you get to the Tigris and Euphrates, which is over in modern-day Iraq, which is where you've got Babylon and uh, where the Persian Empire capital was of Shushan. Those are kind of the first cities, <laughs> big cities that come from the east. Those are a far piece, all right? When, uh, I believe it was Ezra, came from Shushan, it took him about four months to travel from Shushan. It's like 750 miles. Y'all imagine walking to, like, Dallas, okay? That's, that's your scale to travel, okay? And so... These wise men, these magi, they saw the star in the east, and they knew that meant the birth of the king. That was what they came and asked. They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They didn't say, is he born? They didn't say, is it a boy? They said, where is he born king of the Jews? They just want to know where he was at. They saw his star. So most likely, my best understanding is this star appeared 
when he was born. And so you see the star, and these people were able to understand that this meant that the king of the Jews had been born. And even if you left that night, you got a long way to go. Okay? So when exactly did this occur? I don't know. Most likely no shorter than four months and no longer than two years, as we'll see later on. How many were there? I don't know. Folks will speculate there's three because there's three gifts. There's at least two. All the words are plural, but it doesn't give us any more description. So don't don't get caught up in what we will read in cartoon versions um, and impose that on to the scripture. Another thing that I just caught is I always assumed they went straight to Herod. Y'all always kind of figured that? Let's read what it says. It says, They came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They went straight to the king. How did all of Jerusalem find out about it? Most likely, these magi came into the city and they started asking folks, where is he? And it made its way all the way up to the king. Okay. Now, the wise men. What, what is a wise man? Sometimes uh, we don't look that very closely. The word there is what we get the word magician from, magi. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 13. And that's referred to a guy who was a sorcerer. That's how it was translated then. He was a sorcerer who tried to get in Paul's way. There was a deputy of the island of Pathros, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, Paul's coming to preach. He didn't like it. He tried to interject himself, and uh, Paul smites him with blindness. The Lord does through Paul. Um, but that was he's called that twice. You know, read Acts chapter 13. You can see about that. A sorcerer. Same word. Not a very positive connotation. Um, Sometimes I've heard folks try to conjecture these were uh, some of the Chaldeans or astrologers or sorcerers who hung out with Daniel back in the captivity. You know, so that would be some 400 years before this. That's an interesting thought, but there's nothing to support that other than just guessing. So we won't try to do that. All right, so you've got these wise men, these sorcerers, if you will, who were blessed enough to know that the king of the Jews had been born based on this star. All right. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That troubled means to be roiled. You know, imagine a boiling pot. There's, there's some discomfort going on. But it wasn't just him. It was all Jerusalem. They were discomforted by the concept of the Christ being born, or one who had claimed to be the king. But when Herod heard it, what did he do? He gathered the chief priests and the scribes of the people together and demanded of them where Christ should be born. He may not have asked them why. He may not have said, you know, these guys are talking about them being born. He could have just been asking them an academic question. We don't know. But he gathers the top ones who know the law and say, where is he supposed to be born? When Christ comes, where is he supposed to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and this particular prophet is the prophet Micah. This is from Micah 5.2. And the text says, And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judea, for out of thee shall come a governor 
that shall rule my people Israel. You say, why do they have to clarify Bethlehem and Judea? There's more than one Bethlehem. So it's telling you specifically which one it is. Now, do you know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. What does Jesus describe himself as? The living bread. Born in the house of bread. And you've got to eat his body, which is what we'll be doing later, the symbol of doing that later. All right? So thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor, a ruler, a leader, that shall rule my people Israel. Now, when y'all think of that word rule, what image do you get in your head? A king, right? Someone with power, someone with, you know, ruling. You know what that rule really means? It means to lead like a shepherd. Oh. Yeah. Like he thinks he's very so clean. That's what I think of when I think of the word rule. But this word rule is very different. This is leading like a shepherd. Who is Jesus? The good shepherd, right? The one who lays his life down for the sheep. So even in that prophecy, it's pointing to his role as the shepherd. All right? Then, when he had called privately, when he had privately called the wise men. All right, so imagine his court. He had all these wise folks who gave him his answer. He then sends them away. All right? He's troubled by this. Privately, he calls in the wise men. 240, I don't know. Calls them in and inquires of them diligently. The word inquired of and diligently are the same Greek word. It means to be exact. I want to know exactly when that star appeared. What's he trying to figure out? How old this kid is. This threat to me is king. Because the Christ had the right to the throne of David. And so he didn't want anyone growing up to make that claim against him. Because like all men, he assumes he's going to live forever. Or at least longer than now. And so we need to take care of this threat. It's a threat to me. It's a threat to my children who will reign after me. All right. He inquired of them diligently to be exact what time the star appeared. All right. When they gave him that information, he sent them to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, in your mental map, is about nine miles south of Jerusalem. Sometimes, for some reason, I put it over there by Bethany. It's not. It's south. All right. Jerusalem's actually been built on a mountain range that goes along the edge of the Jordan. So down that mountain range, along the top of the mountain, so you can get to Bethlehem. All right. So if you had to hike it, Imagine walking down to Enigma. That's your scale. All right. So he sent them. Go and search diligently for the young child. This is instructions. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Here he is being a lion dog. All right. Notice they didn't say that they agreed. It says when they heard the king, they departed. So they got their marching orders from this king, and they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. All right, so wherever they're coming from over in the east, whether that was Shushan or whether that was farther over, they saw a star. They knew it was the king. They headed to Jerusalem, where the king of the Jews might likely be. And they're asking, where is he? All right, so it had been there. For quite a while. The whole journey, most likely. Now when they depart, 
we assume it's at night. The Lord can use brightnesses that are brighter than the noonday sun during the daytime. So it didn't have to be. I mean, he did that with Paul when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. It was midday. And then a light shone that was, chi- that was brighter than the sun in its heat. Right? But either way, they saw a star and it went befoot- before them. It was moving. And it came and stood. And then it stopped. So it's leading them. Because you imagine, all right, hey, Zach, go to Enigma and find where that baby is. Bunch of houses there. You're going to go door to door? And they've been, you know, already on the road for quite a while on this really kind of odd journey. How are we going to find this one? We went to the capital. They didn't know where he was at. And they sent us off to this little small hamlet nine, ten miles down the road. And the star leads them. And it stood over where the young child was. So all these little Facebook things. Oh, the star of Bethlehem is going to be out tonight. This was not an ordinary star. God could use an ordinary star, but you're not going to get a precise house location from an ordinary star. (laughs) Right? This has got to be something different. This is something special. And so it came over where the house was and stood. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced. With exceeding great joy. It wasn't even they'd seen Jesus yet. They saw the star. They had been given the answer to where their quest was to end. They came and stood over where the young child was. And what exactly the star was? I don't know. The Lord's infinite in power. He can use whatever he chooses. But he got these men from wherever they came from in the east to the exact address they needed to be. And when they were come into the house, Again, this is not the manger, this is not the barn. This is significantly later than that. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. That's a different word than Luke would use to describe the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. The babe is infant. The young child is a childling. Probably more akin to what we would describe as a toddler. Now, when Herod would try and kill everybody, he'd kill everyone from two and under. So this kid is most likely somewhere between six months and I don't know, a year and a half, you'd think he put some kind of extra buffer in there just in case he missed. But that's just speculation. But it's not its not the newborn babe the night they're up. Okay? And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right? And I've heard sermons about what exactly these mean. Um, some referring to kingship, some referring to priestship, some referring to death. I don't know exactly what the symbolism of these mean, but I like patterns. I like patterns to see how things in the Old Testament point to Jesus, because Jesus on the road to Emmaus was explaining to his disciples, here are all the old things, all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to me. Right? And there's a bunch of them. Right? We, we weren't privy to that conversation but I like patterns and looking at things that it showed up back then and then it shows up here in and around Christ. Well, that's probably something that's pointing to him. So, for example, uh, frankincense. Frankincense was the major component. Was it in the oil or the incense? Incense. Okay. So, under the Old Testament law, the priests had to go in every morning and every evening and burn incense. Not on the big altar where they burned, uh, burned the animals. That was outside the tabernacle and later outside the temple. Inside, you had the table with bread on it, showbread. Over here, you had the candlestick 
the 11 sticks, uh, whatever you want to call them, with seven flames, and then you had a small altar, a golden altar, and that was where they would burn the incense. Right? And that was that was a part of that ceremony every day. And then uh, when the high priest would go into the most holy, that separate room where the ark was, he'd only go in once a year, and that would go with blood, and he'd sprinkle it seven times. You know what he did before he went in there? He took a golden censer, filled it with coals and incense, and he shook that thing in there. So even when he was going in, it was cloudy. It was veiled. Even So even behind the veil, you weren't seeing clearly. But the purpose of the incense was it was a sweet smell, a sweet savor. Right? Jesus, in his life and death, is going to be the perfect sacrifice. And here's, here's the, the key to all of it. All the sacrifices, all the elements of the ceremonial worship in the Old Testament, all points to Christ. He fulfills every single part of it. He is the perfect lamb. It's going to be offered outside without spot or blemish. He is the incense. He is the showbread. He is the knowledge of those seven lamps. You know, those are a little harder to get, but that the seven and the lights are referring to God's all knowledge. His eyes that go everywhere throughout the earth and can see everything. His um. No, no, that's being everywhere. Omniscient. Omniscient, knowing all things. Um, so Christ fulfills all of them. Okay, And so here's one where one of the examples of the, the frankincense, that incense, that sweet smell before the Lord. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. And so it's, it's pulling that forward and seeing here points to our Lord. All right. The myrrh, the myrrh is the major component in the uh, anointing oil. All right. When the priest had to separate someone, um, when the priests were separated for the service of the Lord, they were going to be anointed with oil. It's going to be poured on their head, run down their face, under their beard. Right? This was a special anointing oil. It wasn't just any old olive oil. It had a compound of different ingredients. One of the major ones was myrrh. And nobody could make this at home. If you made it at home for your personal use, you were killed. Right? This was special. This was just for the Lord's use. And when they made all that furniture the first time, um, when they made... Uh, the ark, and they made the tabernacle, uh, the, all the pieces of the furniture, the altars, they sprinkled them all with this anointing oil. Okay, and it smelled of myrrh. Right? That was one of the, the main components in the oil. Now, you can see that frankincense and myrrh again show up in the Song of Solomon. I won't go to that this morning because we could spend all morning there, but read the Song of Solomon this, this, this week. Hard to read. The Who's talking jumps back and forth between um, the beloved, the male, Jesus, and then also the fairest of all, which is um, the church. I mean, it is a close, intimate relationship and one who's seeking the other and is coming. And But you look for that pattern of frankincense and myrrh about the smell of her beloved and how it's dripping off his fingers at times. And so it's just all this imagery that the Lord weaves together throughout his text of his Bible to get here to point to here it is. All right. And then gold. Gold's all over the Old Testament worship. I mean, the ark was covered in it. The walls of the tabernacle, you know, you got this ugly tent, right? It's got these uh, red badger, badger skins dyed red on the outside, and then other several layers in there. But when you go inside, the bars had all been covered um, with gold. Right? So you had these little little candles and all the gold reflecting off the walls. Right? And all this pattern pointing to Christ, right? He's the perfect He's the perfect thing of, of value. I mean, gold's always had value in whatever culture you're in. It's to him perfectly. So much so that when we get to heaven, it just becomes paving stones because it don't even matter. Right? The streets are paved with gold. No one cares. 
you've got the perfect thing of value in the Lord. All right. So we won't spend any more, more time on that, but just my, my exhortation to you this morning is when you're reading, wherever you are, see how it points to Christ. And if it points in one spot, go see where else. Build those patterns. See how the Lord has interlocked his word. And it's written over hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet it all flows perfectly together. Okay? All right. So the wise men, uh, these magi, are in the house. They've fallen down. They've worshipped. They've given these um, gifts. They're very valuable. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are not inexpensive things. Um, and in one sense, you could say that the Lord is funding the trip that they're about to have to take, right? Being warned of God in a dream, this is the Magi who are being warned, that they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. So they didn't travel the nine or ten miles back north to Jerusalem and then head off east. They went a different way, all right? So they didn't go back and report to the king that here's where he was. Right? They were warned by God in a dream, all right? And... If you've been reading from chapter 1 in Matthew, this would be uh, the second dream where the Lord is sent to somebody to give them a message. The first dream was uh, Joseph when he received the dream that he, his wife is already, or his fiance is already expecting and he wants to put her away because he doesn't know what to do. And he gets a dream from the Lord explaining that what's within her was conceived of the Holy Ghost and that he can take her as his wife. Um, and so he does. So here you've got the next dream, warned, of, warned not to return to Herod. And they didn't. And then after that, when they were departed, so they've left, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, second dream for Joseph, saying, Arise, and that arise really means wake up, and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek to seek the young child to destroy him. Right? So that was the real purpose for Herod asking the wise men, when was he born? They wanted, he wanted to destroy him. So second dream the Lord sends to Joseph. He sends it, uh, an angel, to tell him, wake up, take him and go. And when he arose, when he woke up, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. There are some times in your life where you will know what it is you're supposed to do. You will know when the Lord is sending you or not sending you. Don't delay. Sometimes you're waiting, Lord. I, I need an answer. I don't. I'm not sure. And other times, okay, wait. But when you get that answer, go. He didn't think. Well, you know, I've got this table. I've really got to finish. Um, it's carpenter. Um, and and if I do that, then I'll be able to pay the taxes next year. And then uh, and so in about three weeks, I'll be able to get up and I'll be able to to go and do what the Lord told me to. He got up then. He arose, took the young child and his mother by night. Most likely the same night. He obeyed and departed into Egypt. Right? Uh, the closest point from you know Bethlehem to Egypt, the Suez Canal, that's that's like roughly walking to like Tampa. Okay. It's a journey. Okay. This is no small undertaking. That he was being told to do, and he got up and he undertook it. So don't be overwhelmed by all the logistics or complications that may come when the Lord is sending you to do something. Do it. Okay. 
And they stayed there. All right, so they're in Egypt. The Lord has provided them finances, gold and frankincense and myrrh that they could trade or sell um, while they're there to support them on top of his ability to work. Um, and they stayed there until the king died. How long you lived up? I don't know. It doesn't say. All right. They were there until the death of Herod. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And this is uh, Hosea, the prophet there. It's Hosea uh, 11 and 1 that they're quoting. So this is the, the third prophecy that's going to be mentioned in Matthew. And if you're reading Matthew and you want to see how the Old Testament points to Christ, read Matthew. He tells you a bunch of them. Here's the prophecy. Here's the fulfillment. Here's the prophecy. Here's the fulfillment. So this is another one that somehow the Lord is going to call his son out of Egypt. Well, he sent him to Egypt to um, keep him from Herod's grasp. All right? And fulfilled the prophecy when he came back. Now, before he called him back, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. Now, how long it took him to figure it out? I don't know. A couple of days? A week? There was some point where he realized those jokers ain't coming back. And he was mad. Exceeding raw. Right? And he sent forth and he gave the order that all the children in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof. Coast means the surrounding villages and towns. Anybody around there were to be slain from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently acquired, inquired of the wise men. So based on this time frame, he said... Two years old and under, I'm going to take him out. And we can read that, but really think about that. How horrific that's. I mean, we've got some politicians we don't like. No one's ever given an order like this. Not in my lifetime. Not in this country. And it was in fulfillment of another prophecy. That was fulfilled, that which was spoken by Jeremy, also uh, Jeremiah, the prophet saying, In Ramah, Ramah is a little town outside of the city of Bethlehem. In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. You imagine the sounds of all those mamas and daddies. And this isn't some foreign invader. And Pharaoh, at least you could hate him, right? Kind of understand that he's your captive when he was killing all the kids back in Moses' time. This is your own king. Herod the Great, he rebuilt the temple. And he's slaying all these children. In Ramah, there was a voice heard. Imagine that just guttural wail. And weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Let me ask why it's mentioning Rachel there. Um, Jacob's wife Rachel died and was buried in Bethlehem. So it's an allusion to the city itself. They're weeping for their children and would not be comforted because they are not. But, so fast forward to however long Herod lived after that. But when Herod was dead... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, wake up, take the young child and his mother into the land of Israel, 
for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And again, he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So it's the third dream that's been sent to Joseph. He obeys again. And they came to the land of Egypt. Israel, excuse me. When he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod, Archelaus, um, Herod's son, is now in charge. He was afraid to go thither. Joseph was afraid. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into parts of Galilee. Now, I've been confused on this notwithstanding. Um, is it he was warned to go anyway or to go somewhere else? Um, the notwithstanding is just a conjunction. It could be read as and. So he was afraid. And he was warned. Um, but the ideas is, are connected. He was afraid to go thither. And being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into parts of Galilee. So my, my best guess is that he is following yet again the dream, his fourth dream, saying, go into Galilee. And Galilee is the region to the north of Jerusalem. That's where Nazareth is. That's where Capernaum is. All the way up north, farther up the, the mountain chain. All right. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be spoken might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. All right. And this this word Nazarene, trying to figure out where do the prophets say that? That one's a little confusing. Um, in the Old Testament, there was the, the concept of the people who were going to be put apart for a time to serve the Lord. They wouldn't cut their hair. Like Samson was one from birth. That's a, a Nazarene. You'd think it's referring to that. Apparently it's not. Apparently that's false alliteration. That's just words that sound the same, but they don't have any actual connection, uh, at least according to Strong's and some other Greek guys who know a lot more than I do. Um, but apparently the word Nazareth or Nazarene has a, in its root the idea of a branch. And Jesus would be described in the Old Testament as the branch. And that point of him being the branch and the vine, and all that goes into the hometown that he was born, which makes sense um, why uh, I think it was Nathan. I can't remember who it was. One of the apostles was so uh, kind of less than uh, enthused about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. You know, can any good thing come from from there? Um, and so if it was it was so easy to be the one to one of Nazarene and a, and a Nazarite like Samson, I think it wouldn't have been. That's shocking for him, but I can see the branch being a little bit more obscure. All right. So then they go and dwell in Nazareth. And that will get you back over to Luke right after they, verse 40 of chapter 2. Turned into Galilee, their own city, Nazareth. That's where they had been before they went down to Bethlehem to be counted or enrolled um, for the taxes or the census. Verse 40, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we've got one other scene before um, his ministry starts, and that is when he was 12 years old. The child grew Waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom, custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. You can imagine the big caravan of everybody going from Nazareth and Galilee. That's well, a lot of kin. They're all traveling in a you know big old long chain herd, maybe some animals. And he's off playing with the kids, or at least that's what Mary and Joseph think. And so they've already gone a whole day's journey back north before they discover it. So that means they got to take a day's journey to get back to Jerusalem. And it came that after three days, they found him. Now, I, I can, I can kind of sympathize with Mary about being upset. Because <laughs> I'm not sure if that's three days since they last saw him or three days since they discovered he was missing Right? There is a long period of time for any 12-year-old to be missing. Right? They came back, they're seeking him, and they finally found him. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Right? So he had he's giving glimpses of this is not an ordinary child. He has got more knowledge than you would expect. They were amazed. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye have sought me? Wist ye or knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. I could see that being a, a confusing answer. Um, particularly after your child has been missing for, for so many days. That he, did you not understand that I must be about his father's business? And, and it was right for him to do so. You know that he didn't have any sin. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them for about another 18 years. He was 12 when he started his ministry at 30. He was subject unto his parents and did as they, they said. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So that's our intro look into our Lord and Savior when the Word became flesh, born, visited by the wise men, fleeing into Egypt, eventually returning to Nazareth, and growing up there subject to his parents all while living a, a sin, sin-free life. So his life started with gifts, and it's really going to end with some gifts too. And uh, I'm going to tie this in just a little bit before we go into our communion service. The Lord gave us the ordinance of communion, Ordinance is a, a command. It's not something that you can voluntarily choose to do or not to do, but to the churches, they are commanded to observe it. Um, the difference between that and uh, washing feet is the language that he used to describe foot washing was that happier you if you do it. It's, it's conditional. It's a voluntary 
um, which is why we don't count it as an ordinance. The other one being baptism. Commanded to repent and be baptized and to observe the Last Supper where you have this reminder of the ultimate gift that he gave you and that of himself. It's more precious than gold. It was a more perfect sacrifice than anything that could be offered under the law or any animal. It was the most sweet-smelling savor. You know, it was the anointed. You know, he was the anointed. The Messiah means the anointed. So he was the anointed oil himself, and he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, not just of spices and herbs. But it all points to him and what he was going to do on on the cross for each of his children. So I'm going to stop there for now, and we will. Uh,